Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Dr. Jeff McNary, and he is a psychologist uh, that has been working in the healthcare field for over 25 years. He's worked in a variety of medical environments and seen the struggle individuals have when actually trying to heal. The current Western system of healthcare is deficient in healing the population, and his work is about finding alternative sources uh, to help individuals shift and change. So he spent quite a, a bit of time uh, working with patient populations that really f- struggled with addictions, acute mental health disorders, and trauma. He believes that the only real healing can come from within. So he's worked with some pretty extreme cases and patients. Uh, he was one of the lead doctors at one of the top addictions uh, rehabilitation facilities in the world. Uh, and he is now the leading um, physician and uh, psychologist at Rhythmia, uh, which is an institution that uh, is in Costa Rica, and they focus in on plant-based medicine. And uh, I, if you you know follow follow me in July, I actually went down to Rhythmia for a week, and I'll be sharing some of my experiences in this podcast, um, but also in future podcasts to come. So stay tuned for that. But Dr. Jeff and I really focus in on a, an incredible conversation. This is this is arguably one of my favorite conversations that I've had with anyone. Um, not only because Jeff shares his background of growing up in the inner streets of Los Angeles, but also his uh, journey to becoming a psychologist that is now working with one of the largest um, ayahuasca and plant-based medicine. Uh, retreat centers in the world. And they've had over 6,000 people uh, go through their institution and you know use plant-based medicine with some incredible results. Uh, and on this episode, Dr. Jeff and I talk about the neuroscience of psychedelics. And we talk about the neuroscience of a few different uh, plant-based medicines like ayahuasca, like psilocybin. Uh, and he really breaks down uh, the inner workings of how these plant-based medicines work within the brain, within the body. Uh, we, you know, we talk about what people need to know going into it, how it can benefit people, and uh, you know, the interesting thing for Dr. Jeff is you know, having worked at one of the top uh, rehabilitation centers in the world and departing that. Uh, you know, he talks a little bit about how those some of those institutions aren't necessarily set up to really support certain types of addicts that are that are really struggling with mental health disorders and uh, he shares his you know personal perspective on what plant-based medicine can do so this is a really fascinating topic there's a you know a few different avenues that we go down but the big one is the is the research and the science and the neuroscience behind how plant-based medicines actually function and and why the way why they work the way that they do so really super uh, you know interesting episode uh, but just before I bring him on just a quick reminder to head on over to the man talks community and uh, on Facebook and join the conversations that are happening there and for the guys that are wanting to go deeper and work with an incredible group of men definitely check out and, uh, and and join the alliance we have weekly calls there's accountability and the men that are in that group are are just really powerful uh, and Exciting news. Stay tuned. 
uh, as later on this year, I will be finalizing uh, my book, which is going to be entirely about the shadow of men. And so this will look at how our shadow as men uh, is the main access point for us being able to actualize our potential, find more confidence, uh, be able to enter into more challenging conversations with partners, be able to uh, find a deeper sense of purpose, and finally stand up to the inner critic and the victim and just the dysfunction (laughs) within us that often gets in the way. So stay tuned for that because I am going to be asking you for a bit of uh, support in terms of naming the book, I'd like to come up with a concept that's super powerful. So if you have any ideas off the top of your head, again, the book is all about our shadow as men. Uh, So if you have any ideas, feel free to direct message me on Instagram. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Jeff McNary. All right. I am here with Dr. Jeff McNary, who is the Chief Medical Officer at Rhythmia. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah. And, you know, I think the interesting thing is I actually did a little bit of, admittedly, I'm going to fess up here. I did a little bit of internet sleuthing. We'll call it that. Not stalking, just <laughs> good, a little good. bit of internet sleuthing good. before I came out here. And uh, to hear your story, uh, earlier today, uh, just some of the pieces that led you to this work was really incredible. So, um, so let's start there. So, t- tell me a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. You know, I think I, there was the most important moment for me. I believe was hands down the first time I did plant medicine, um, but I was you know only about five years ago. So, I think a, a more defining moment was when I realized as a kid that the system that's out there in the world does not really do so well at protecting us. Mm. And I learned that I had to really take care of myself and watch out for myself. And even though I had loving parents and a great family, you know, um, the area of Los Angeles that I grew up in was very rough at the time. And I saw things as a kid that were scary and unsettling and regularly happening all the time. So there was this moment that I was able to pinpoint, you know, through doing plant medicine that I I clicked over into this mode where not only do I have to protect myself, but I'm going to protect those that can't protect themselves Mm. or don't know. Mm. And that's what shifted my whole view of the world. And I was, I was young. I was in my early teens when I had that moment. And from that point forward, I just worked as a protector and a person that looks out for people that, that are disadvantaged and, and underserved. Yeah. Do you mind sharing what the moment was? Is that, is that yeah. off limits? No, it's okay. Uh, it's, it, was, it was crazy. So it was actually the culmination of several things. Uh, one of them happened when I was about five years old. And we lived on a really busy street at the time. And a girl was walk, a teenager was walking across the street, got hit by a car. Oh. And I saw it happen and it was very grotesque and very scary. And I was a child and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand death and she died instantly. And, and you know, it was a street that I lived on and was on all the time. You know, there was that. And then the next week, my little brother walked out. He was only two, got out and went out into the middle of the street. And I'll give you the hint. He didn't die. So <laughs> thank God. <laughs> I'll give a preview. He, he's, he's fine. Okay. But... But what happened was he went out in the middle of the street and started sitting down in the middle of the street playing with his little toys, right? And I found him. 
So that like scared me because yeah. I just seen this death from a, an adult or a young teen or an older teen. Then now there's my little brother on the same street and the hell's angels found him uh, when they were riding their bikes by and they brought him. I'm like, Oh my gosh. And I was like kind of going out there just as they were picking him up. They, they were, they were helping. They were trying to, wow. whose kid is this kind of yeah, thing? Right? Yeah. <laughs> What's he doing in the middle of the road? And the, then the, the biker looked at me, you know, and he was concerned. He was a hell's angel. He looked at me and he says, you better take care of your little brother. And I, it just hit me like that was those two events together. Right. And then the third event that led to this belief, right. Was that one of my good friends that I grew up with, um, was shot and murdered, you know, he was in a gang in, yeah. in East Los Angeles, but gang violence and he was murdered and he was one of my homies, you know, and it just, all these events. And those were three of probably thousands I could probably list. But those are those are things that kind of set me into this. Like my job is to protect not only myself but other people yeah. because I've seen when things go wrong and what it looks like, and I've felt it. Yeah, I mean it's it's so interesting that it led you. I mean, it sounds like it led you somewhat onto the path that you've taken. Definitely. Um, but but also it, it seemed to form you. Like it sounds like it formed you with a little bit of altruism mixed into that. And so where did where did that show up? Because I think some people under those circumstances in that environment yeah. would not take the altruistic path of I'm going to use this, yeah. this thing, these moments to shape me, quote unquote, for good. So yeah. what do you attribute that to? I think, I think it's a, a couple things. Um, my parents were really good people. Okay. And they set a great example of how to love others and respect everyone. Yeah. And so that was like the theme of our house. And, you know, I think it also had to do with there was just this vibe that was pushing me towards this positive thing. And, I, and it's hard to understand really what it was at yeah. the time. Um, I get, I get that. Right. I, I understand that. Like yeah. when you do, when you say it, I just, I, you know, I remember going through shit as a kid, your parents divorce and, you know, there was verbal and emotional abuse from, from my stepfather and, you know, there was how that's how I coded it at least. And, and, uh, but I always, I always had this, that, that sort of like track of like that sort of positive vibe and yeah. like somehow knowing that it would all be okay, no matter yeah. what, you know, yeah. just like no matter what. And I, and I think it's very interesting because I think I've been able to like attribute that to to my mom and the way that she was when I was like a really little kid. Yeah. But you know, I think that that's also sort of how we come into this world. You know, there's just like this inherent nature definitely of, of goodness. You yeah. Know, ba- babies don't come into the world <laughs> just complete fucking nightmares. Angry and pissed yeah, off. Yeah, just no. angry and pissed <laughs> off. You know, that's they're true. just they're just, you know eating and shitting and, <laughs> and laughing and crying, but exactly. Uh, but for, so for you, you had this, this positive vibe, this positive track and that sort of carried you through. It did. And you know, I think also like I was scared because I saw like what would happen to me if mm. I didn't keep it positive because other people around me were not keeping it positive. They were getting killed and going to jail and getting arrested and all kinds of drama yeah. I didn't like that. I didn't want that to happen to me. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what kept me more positive. Yeah. And from your, you know, from your perspective, what causes people to 
like what causes people that are were in your situation to go down an alternative path? Yeah, yeah. I think it's lack of hope. Okay. And you know, in those disadvantaged, low-income communities, there's not a lot of hope all the time. Yeah. There's not a lot of role models. There's not, you know, in where I grew up, there's like, you know, great grandparents were in the gang. Whoa. So you got your great grandfather, <laughs> your grandfather, yeah, your dad, yeah. All your brothers, all your uncles are in the same sort of way of living. Yeah. So it's just expected. And it's like, it's just a routine. Yeah. You know, so there's that kind of thing going on. Interesting. Well, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of listeners can understand that. Maybe not that thing that your parents yeah. were in, you know, in the yeah. gang, but, you know, your father is a doctor and yeah. your grandfather is a doctor. And the expectation is that you go to doctor school. That's right. And you can feel that pull and that, that sort of, familiar expectation of that's like right. this is what you go do that's right and uh yeah. i think it has to do also with like you know the way western culture is it's kind of like you know you're 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 successful if you have all these material items yeah or if you have these crazy cars and all this this mansion all this crap right and if you got a family that doesn't have resources like that they do have a tv yeah. And they're watching on TV this sort of American dream that supposedly <laughs> is happening, right? And it, we all know it's that's a, fa- a facade. Yeah. But if you're living in the in the hood and you got to make some money. Yeah. Well, how are you going to do it? Well, here's these guys over here that are dealing drugs, driving fast cars, cool clothes, got all the chicks and they're dealing drugs. So that's what you do. You just fold over there. Because your dad or your brother or whatever is working construction or doing some blue collar job, right. barely making rent, so it just it's just an easy decision when you're young and stupid, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think George Carlin, you know, sort of said it best. He said it's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's I love like that. <laughs> it's like I remember hearing that and I was like, holy fuck, like <laughs> that's a that's a truth bomb if I've ever heard it, you know. It's just amazing. So Very well played. True. He was I mean, he is like an enlightened comedian, you know? <laughs> totally. he was well well ahead of his time. So, okay, so you grow up in this in this neighborhood in this environment, you you know, you have these things happen, you you stick to this you stick to this altruism of, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something about this and, and protect the people. That's what I almost hear is like I'm gonna protect yeah. people who can't necessarily protect themselves or that yep. society isn't bothering to protect. Both. Yes. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And, and so that leads you to going to do what after after high school? So I did, uh, I, I got into medical anthropology. <laughs> what? <laughs> What the hell is that? Because, that? yeah, it's very wild, right? Medical that anthropology. Medical anthropology. Like so the history of medicine? Cultural beliefs surrounding healthcare. Really? Yeah, cultural beliefs. So I studied mostly Latin American uh, cultural health beliefs, like indigenous cultures. Interesting. About what they viewed healthcare as and how they did healing and how they viewed sickness and all that kind of stuff. And I applied to PhD programs in medical anthropology. I got into Berkeley. Yeah. Um, but I knew that uh, the route of an academic person would be a certain way. Yeah. And I decided I want to go and do medical anthropology research for a year and push off my enrollment for a year, which you could do, you could defer it. And I went to UCLA and worked with, uh, Dr. Carol Browner, who was the head 
top medical anthropology researcher in the world. Mm. And she just happened to be at UCLA in the Neuropsychiatric Institute. So I just called her up cold. I said, hey, I just got into Berkeley for med anthro, but I want to make sure I want to do it. So can I come volunteer and be a research associate with you and, and learn about this for like a year? She said, absolutely, because I was fluent in Spanish. So she said, yeah, 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 come on, because we need, we need you know, we're doing Latin American women's reproductive health. Huh. So I said, perfect. So I, I came down, started working with her on a, on a prenatal diagnostic screening research study on maternal serum alpha fetal protein and amniocentesis, which is random, right? <laughs> That's a mouthful. So random. That's a mouthful. So I would interview the women that were from Latin America that were first generation that were pregnant. They were offered amniocentesis, and they believed that it was to help their baby because they were not given informed consent. And amniocentesis does not help anything. It's diagnostic. It uh-huh. just tells you if you got spina bifida or Down syndrome or if you're a healthy baby. So they thought it was helping them. But amniocentesis has a risk of creating a, an abortion. You can mm. abort the baby with the process. Really? So these are all mostly Catholic, conservative women from mostly Mexico and Central America that were living in Los Angeles. And they they don't they weren't going to abort the baby. They were it doesn't matter what the diagnosis told them. Yeah. So like we were investigating all this different stuff about it. So that was a medical anthropology example of like what that research is about: cultural beliefs around healthcare, how it's related to policy and and provision of services. Wow. Yeah. That's wow. how I start off with this. That is wild. <laughs> totally. That's wild, man. That's like. The most uh, sort of unexpected entry point. <laughs> totally, totally, right? Well, that's funny. After the end of this year, right, I was getting near the end. I'm like, you know what? I don't want to compete for grant money with like these 20 top people who are three times my age and are the experts in the field. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not into this and be in a, you know, work for the rest of my career in a, in a university setting. So she knew that about me. She knew, you know, I was, I was liking the research. It was interesting, but I, I didn't want to do this for my career. Yeah. So she says, why don't you just go to UCLA and get your master's in public health? Because it's more hands-on, more policy-oriented. I said, all right. So I applied, got in, forgot about the med anthro PhD, yeah. and started working in the community health sciences department at UCLA, and I was studying in grad school there. Year one, you had to do an internship. So I applied to... Uh, the UCLA OBGYN family planning clinics. Mm. And I want, I had to present like what I want to do there for my internship. And I said, I'm going to do a male Latino reproductive health study. Hmm. Cause I was already kind of in that zone. And they said, absolutely. So the director at the time was this woman, Dr. Janice Amar, who was an amazing, amazing mentor, brilliant person. And she hired me. I was only male on this OBGYN staff. Wow. Right? Yeah. It was pretty interesting. So I did my little research project, and I really liked working there, and I was learning all this stuff. And um, at the end of the internship, they said, hey, do you want to work here now? I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I would do genetic counseling, reproductive health counseling. I learned all the procedures that OBGYNs do. You know, I was in the clinic. Where the nurse practitioners were teaching me. So I'm finishing up my second year of the MPH, then working at that clinic. Mm-hmm. Then I finished my MPH, and they said, our director Janice is leaving and now we have an opening. So do you want to be the, the, the director of the community health programs? I said, yeah. So I took the job. So I was running the clinic, managing the grants, working with the staff, working with uh, uh, a couple other people administratively above me. Eva Selsky is her name. And she was an awesome, awesome person. And she was my supervisor. 
And then we started doing all kinds of other studies. And that's where mm-hmm. I, I wrote that grant with Eva Selsky about the, uh, the prenatal or the, the women that were developmentally disabled that mm-hmm. needed reproductive health. And we targeted them and got a federal grant. So that was a big deal. So I, I said, you know, I got to go to medical school because I'm working with all these doctors. I have an MPH now. You know, I'll go to medical school. So I went back to UCLA, took all the undergrad sciences. Yeah, I was older at the time for, wow. for undergrad. Yeah. I was like 25, 26, yeah. 27. I was all these like 17, like, 18 that's, that's old. That's the older, right? It's like, <laughs> totally, yeah. That was, <laughs> I, was 20, I was 25 and 26 yeah. and I was, I was a geezer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in those classes. Like all these 17, 18-year-old kids were out of high school. They're just these valedictorian brainiacs, oh, right? Yeah. In pre-med science at UCLA, it's an absolute nightmare. Damn. Dude, that was a rat race. <laughs> but anyway, I learned, I did all the pre-meds. I applied to med school, got in uh, to Charles Drew program, which is two years UCLA, two years Charles Drew, which is in Watts. Yeah. And that's where you did your second half. And I, the, but then, dude, I've been managing this clinic. I'm like, this sucks, dude. I'm over it. Yeah. So I just said, screw it, and went, moved to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, my wife was like, what are you doing? Yeah, why did you, you want know? to go to Hawaii? It was well, just like my wife at the time, my first wife was, grew up on Maui. Oh, okay. And, and I All had right. a family on Kauai. Okay. And I'd always surfed my whole life and had an outrigger canoe club in the in Marina del Rey yeah. with Hawaiian war canoes. So I've been paddling my whole life. So I just said, let's just go to Hawaii. So she got some job offer out there. So I said, we're out. So we bailed. Wow. I was just going to surf and hang because yeah. I've, I've, you know, I've been studying my ass off for like yeah. forever. Yeah. So eventually I got a job and, and I worked for the Department of Health of Hawaii. And what they had me do, it was actually a private agency called the Institute for Family Enrichment. And they had a contract with DOH. And they would throw towards us uh, kids, Hawaiian kids that were considered problematic. Uh-huh. Yeah, but they weren't problematic. They were just not fitting into the mainland Haole system that was imposed upon them. Huh. And Haole means outsider right. or without breath, which is a Polynesian thing. Interesting. And and so I was like, dude, I, I'm I'm down with these kids. Like I I can totally see what's going on here. Yeah. There's a system being imposed on these families that is not matching their cultural identity. Yeah. So forget the the structure that I was told I had to use to help them. I'm gonna do my own structure. So I meet with the families. I meet with the kids. I take them surfing, get them into hula. We go cultivate a taro patch, which is very culturally spiritual practice. Yeah. Get them do all kinds of Hawaiian stuff and get their identity back. And it's funny because like I thought that way as a person, but then there's this movie I saw. It's called Once We're Warriors. Hmm. Once We're Warriors is about the, a Maori uh, family in New Zealand. Yeah. And it's like in modern times. And they're like in the, in the projects. And all the kids are all high risk. And there's this one dude who comes in who tries to like help this one particular kid. And he has him learn the haka, you know, which is the the Maori chant, war chant. And and just gets him to be plugged back into himself culturally. And then that's where his empowerment starts to take over. Mm -hmm. So I was like, dude, I'm just going to do what they do once we're warriors. So, (laughs) (laughs) So I got all the kids plugged into like their cultural roots, you know. And then what naturally happens is self-esteem goes up. Yeah. And when self-esteem goes up, dysfunctional behaviors fall to the wayside. Yeah. So drug use was going down, probation time in jail was going down, all the grades were going up. You know, my one kid, dude, it was hilarious. One kid in particular, 
we go to an IOP or an IEP, which is like the, the education plan with the principal and the teachers. Yeah. And it usually he'd be in there all pissed off. He'd be like, <laughs> oh, bro, I'm not doing that. You stupid kind. Like just talking <laughs> shit to the principal. And they would always be mad at him. Like, no, 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 no. You know, they'd give him more things to do and it just never went well. So I right. said, dude. So I, I sat with him after. I go, dude. You gotta roll with an empowerment vibe and respect. And then you can get what you need. And you don't have to freaking hit up against the wall, man, because yeah. you're gonna lose. So let's teach you to be empowered and feel good about who you are so that can come across to the people that are sort of dictating your life right now. Yeah. So he did it and it worked. And I've been with I've been talking to this guy. Now he's not a kid. He's you know, he's a man, he's got he's married, he has family. I talk to him all the time. Man, he's doing awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so amazing. That's kind of how that started. So then I then I'm like, dude, I need to get a I need to get a, a psych degree. Cause I'm doing psych <laughs> stuff, you know? And so I, I moved back to LA and got my doctorate. Yeah. And I did all kinds of internships and rehabs and and psych hospitals. And I, did, I worked in for a nonviolent sex offender place that was outpatient in Beverly Hills. Did all, you know, I got his patient care, did all my school. And then I started managing Passages, which is a, a rehab in Malibu. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was uh, the first mainstream non 12 step place. Hmm. So most rehabs are 12 step, and most recovery is 12 step. But this place was like, not, not gonna do it. So I thought it was kind of a rebellious vibe to start. <laughs> I was gonna say there's a, there's a theme emerging <laughs> there is, there is. about your, your uh, progression here. <laughs> That's right, you can see it. So I was like, you know. My grandpa was a big 12-step guy, and he did awesome. So I'm not, like, against 12-step. It's just whatever works for somebody. But I was like, man, I like this vibe because it's, like, it's patient-centered. You mean client-centered. It's it's got holistic stuff in there. It's got spiritual counseling, body work, healthy food, all this kind of – all this stuff that most rehabs can't afford to Mm. do or just don't want to do. And the response was really good by the clients. They They liked it. It was helping them a bit, you know. And so I said, man, this is really cool. So I was the director. So I didn't work with people. I just managed the facility. And then here comes Jerry <laughs> as a patient. Enter Jerry Powell. Yes. Uh-huh. Here comes this guy, right? And, you know, we're used to seeing people that are hard to manage at, yeah. at passages. I mean, you got owners of pro sports teams that go in there, CEOs. Famous. Yeah, Passages is, is a pretty well-known, <laughs> yeah. like uh, almost kind of like a famous institution for yeah. uh, rehabilitation. Yeah. Just just before we get into the Jerry saga, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> which will lead us into the plant medicine, yeah. certainly. Uh, you know, I think the just one thing that really stands out to me is, is this progression of being able to see where s- systems and structures aren't working for people. Yes. And, and maintaining this sort of uh, altruism that we talked about before, but then being able to, to question the rules, question the system, question the structure, and say, just because that's the way we've been doing it doesn't mean that that's the right way to do it. That's right. And I think the, the interesting thing is that you seem to have just followed that, and that's led you on this you know incredible journey. Um, and just one one quick question, what was the the sort of motivation you know you had mentioned that you worked with 
uh, women with Down syndrome and uh, what what else was it? It was Down syndrome and yeah, like and, most uh, most developmental just dis- yeah autism yeah. Down syndrome m- mental retardation, which was a diagnosis back in the old DSM. Yeah, but yeah, just different levels of developmental ability and disability. And but you were working with them specifically around uh, fertility, around reproductive health. Reproductive so health. so pelvic exams, birth control, okay, uh, sexual health. Yeah. That kind of thing. What was the draw there? Well, what was happening at the clinic is we were getting a lot of those women showing up. Okay. And they would come with their moms or their sisters or friends. And they were really scared. Because, yeah. you know, they had to get their first pelvic exam at some point. And, and a lot of them needed, uh, one of them was really scared. And I go, what's going on? Right with, I asked the mom. She's like, well, she just got raped. I was like, what? This lady that's, that's developmentally disabled just got raped? She's like, yeah. I was like, holy crap. So I started seeing a theme of this, like some mm. sexual assault stuff happening. And that's when I looked up the, the statistics nationwide. It was like 85 to 100% was what the studies were showing of the, those women were sexually assaulted. Jeez. So I said, you know what? We got we to gotta have a program that not only, that not only produ- provides reproductive health, but also is sensitive to them to give them some education and, you know, allows for multiple appointments in a week because maybe they get scared and leave. Yeah. And we don't want to give them an appointment a month later. We right. want to get them in right away. So, like, it ha- and so there's certain things we built into the program that would give them some education and awareness, you know. And I used to go do outreach and I'd go to these, like, these, these little uh, kind of, like, factories where they would hire people with disabilities. Yeah. So they're all in this warehouse working and they loved it. It was, like, fun. It was a, it was a good environment. So I would go and give them a training and it was hilarious because all these guys, all these women, uh, you know, developmentally disabled, I'm talking about how to use condoms and stuff. Too. <laughs> they were going crazy. They were so fun. So much fun. So then what would happen is we get the women as patients yeah. and, and we'd work with their families, of course, and just do the normal pelvic exam stuff. And if they need a birth control, you know, a lot of people want to think that they're not having sex, right? Right. They're having sex. Yeah. Okay. They're yeah. having sex. So it needs to be safe. So we would show them and teach them and this and that. So that was a really cool thing. So I wrote a grant with uh, my team. And we got funded by the feds, millions of dollars to wow. keep this thing. It's still there. Wow. UCLA Sexual and Reproductive Health Services is still booming in, wow. in Westwood. Yeah. That's amazing, man. <laughs> amazing. I love it. All right. So, so uh, incredible work unfolds. And... You're at passages. You're working with, uh, you know, people that are struggling with some pretty serious addictions. Yeah, uh, you seem to like challenges. I do. I, I think I'm hearing that you really like challenges. I do. I do. Which is like, you know, we're going to touch <laughs> on with arrhythmia, but so Jerry Powell comes in, and yeah. uh, and you decided to work with him specifically. Yeah. Um, maybe tell me a little bit more about about what you saw when he first came in and, and why you wanted to work with him. Well, uh, you know, I was I would anytime a client would come new, I would do an intake evaluation. I would determine who would be their best treatment team. Yeah, because we had all the different various therapists that worked there, and I would build a team based on their needs. So um, when he came in, he was so brilliant. He was that was noticeable right away. He was very smart, and he was also completely aggressively angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard this. <laughs> And he had multiple 
drug and alcohol issues. It wasn't yeah. just Demerol. It was yeah. everything. Everything you can imagine. Yeah, when I interviewed him, uh, we kind of went through the, you know, it was like yeah. cocaine and women <laughs> and booze. And yeah, I mean, it, he it just really ran the gamut. And so, so he came yeah. in and yeah. he's at sort of the peak of this. Yeah. And, and, and he, he was just like, you know, I thought to myself, all right, it's been a rough couple months for my team. We've had a lot of rough guests in here. You know what? I don't know if I can turn him over to the team right now because, you know, I'm, I'm worried that I'll burn him out. I don't know if this dude will relate because he was just a certain really strong personality. So I still gave him a treatment team, but then I said, I'm also going to talk to him every day he's here for two months. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's commitment. Yeah. <laughs> and not only that, passages are, are these homes, these mansions on this private road. Yeah. So like my office was like a bedroom. It had been converted into an office. So next, the next door, which is inches from my door, was where I put his ass. Oh my God. <laughs> he was right next to me so I could keep an eye on him. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> so he'd open his door to his bedroom, just walk right into my office and we'd just talk. You know? Oh my gosh. And I realized, and he realized that there was this certain sort of like, there was some energy that we had that was like really different than normal. Like yeah. it, was, it was super positive. He felt safe with me. I was interested in his well-being for a, a reason that I don't really know at the time. I didn't understand. Yeah. Of course, I was always interested in the well-being of all the guests. But for some reason, this dude, there was something that, like, I couldn't explain it. There, yeah. was, there was some reason for this happening. You know, I didn't, I didn't get it at the time. Yeah. And then his kids showed up. I worked with them. His wife showed up. I worked with her. His mom, his sisters. Started doing all kinds of family therapy, you know. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you so you work with him. Uh, you end up working with him for uh, four or five years. Yeah. And uh, outside of passages. Outside of yeah. passages. And 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 treatment is is sort of it's 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 working. It's it's going well. But you know he's not letting go of some of his addictions. Correct. And and I would imagine that you're getting sort of like what the hell do yeah. I do with, <laughs> with this? Yeah. Uh, and how did how did the plant medicine come about? Well, you know, we were both frustrated that he wasn't getting better in certain ways. And so what happened was is that, you know, he was at the end of his rope and he became, you know, he had suicidal ideation again. Yeah. He, he didn't have an attempt, but he was thinking about it. So I said, dude, we got to come up with something. And so what happened was a friend of his, a friend of mine that knew a shaman talked to him and said, hey, dude, I had this feeling that you're going to do something self-harming. There's a place in Costa Rica where you can go and take a plant medicine that'll it'll change you because it happened to this guy I know and he was just like you. Yeah. So Jerry said, "All right, man, I'll do it." I mean, it sounds like a bunch of crap, but I'll just try it because I don't know what else to do. So he came down to Costa Rica in this place up in the mountains and did it. Yeah. And when he came back, you know, after doing some of these ceremonies, what was the difference that you saw from from a like a clinical standpoint? Well, first of all, when I saw him, I walked, you know, walked up to him and I could tell like maybe 15, 10, 15 feet away, this was a different person. I could just tell from just looking at him. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. Then I was talking to him and he was like emotionally grounded. He wasn't chaotic. He wasn't seeking drama. He wasn't uh, avoiding himself anymore. Mm. He was actually at peace with himself, which I've never seen up to that point. Yeah. He's always trying to run from himself and hide. 
in, through those behaviors, right? But he was just totally plugged in. It was Incredible. crazy. Yeah. Incredible. And so, so he says, Jeff, you should, you need to go down <laughs> and do plant medicine as well. Yeah. Cause at first I didn't believe him that he was actually changed. Right. But then I saw him and I was like, Whoa. <laughs> and then he goes, guess what, dude, you're going down. <laughs> so I was like, Oh no. You know, cause I was nervous. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know anything about this stuff. And he's telling me stuff like he went to the moon and all right. that. Right. And you're like, probably like, what talking, the fuck about? Are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, dude, I don't want to go to the moon. I'm yeah. cold here on yeah. earth. Man. Well, it, I would imagine <laughs> that from like a, from like a clinical standpoint, you know, on, on the one hand, you can see this like radical shift yeah. in his being. And on the other hand, you're hearing about how he got there. Yeah. And you're like, what <laughs> the hell? Like, how does that equate to healing? Exactly. You know? and, and I would imagine yeah. that created some dissonance. But, uh, okay, so you have your experiences. Yeah. And, uh, and what were those like from, like a, from a clinician's standpoint? What was it like to go and, and do plant medicine for the first time? Well, you know, I was, like I said, I was really nervous because this is not something I was taught in school <laughs> at yeah. all. At all. And, uh, however, I was open to it to some degree because of my background in medical anthropology, Latin American cultural stuff, and also just worldwide sort of, you know, health policy. So, uh, when I did the medicine, um, what I immediately noticed that happened was I did inner child work really fast. Yeah. And inner child work is really powerful when you can do it, but it usually requires like in the Western model a lot of trust with the therapist. It requires a lot of time. Yep. Sometimes it takes years to be able to actually do it. And that's just expensive, basically. Yeah. So what I noticed on plant medicine is I could do inner child work immediately. Yeah. I could go to myself as a, as a little boy and resolve the, the confusion that I felt at the time mm. and the fear. Because I was based in fear is what my whole thing was. Mm. And I just like healed it right there. And it, and it connected to me, actually, the, the, the peace of it. I felt at peace. Hmm. And the music that's played is very interesting because it, it keeps you in line with the experience. So if you start to feel like you're drifting, if you just can focus on the music, it brings you right back. And then you start healing more and more and more. Yeah. When I met my soul for the first time, like on the plant medicine, yeah. it grabbed me and beat the crap out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, here we go. Wake he was up. pissed at me. Yeah, how he was come? pissed off because he said that I wasn't paying attention to him and I wasn't acknowledging that I even had a soul. Yeah, it was wild. Do you find that that I'll, I mean, maybe I'll just put my opinion forward first rather than sort of like leading <laughs> leading the witness. Yeah. But I, I found that a lot of a lot of men, especially, but a lot of women as well, but a lot of men, especially have had something happen along the way whether they're conscious of it or not and yeah uh and it doesn't have to be something radical right it can it can be that they felt neglected or abandoned or whatever yeah. uh or, or bullied uh and and it separates them from their younger self which you know this this sort of soul seems to be connected to this younger younger version that seems to be a, a big thing so when a lot of men go and heal and do this inner child work and that's you know at the at the men's weekends and the and the the work that I do with men, it's all deep shadow work ah, and good. it's all inner child work. It's all nice. like getting them to face the shit that's happened in their past that they haven't been able to come to terms with, yeah. So that they can be fully present in the moment and, and more yeah. embodied. That's key. Um, so, so do you find that as well? Do you find that the the sort of connection with this spirituality with this with the soul 
happens generally through uh, inner child work? I do. And yeah. I believe that, you know, when there's, when we're kids or, you know, this inner child thing, the reason why it's so powerful is because when those events happened, whatever they were, abandonment, trauma, abuse, whatever, yeah. there's a split of the self, right? And then that's where we start to show the world something that's not us. It's like an unauthentic version of ourselves, our ego, yeah. and we're disconnected. So then in order to like plug back into yourself, you got to heal that time when you were, caused the split. Yeah. So for me, it was like around age five, you know, and then I think this whole thing is about that. It's all about plugging back into who you really are. And the way you can do that is you go back to where the split occurred. Mm. And it was at that age, you know, four, five, six, seven years old yeah. when it happened for most people. Yeah. So I believe that's a key fundamental thing for all this healing. Yeah. And, you know, I think the interesting thing about this, this split, um, you know, whether, whether people think it's spiritual or psychological or, you know, whatever the label the listeners want to put on that, I think, yeah. you know, just having that freedom is good. Uh, it, it seems to show up in a multitude of ways in terms of like the symptoms of the split, right? Like high amounts of anxiety, mm -hmm. depression, yeah. uh, I've noticed a big one for people is a, a significant lack of clarity. Oh, yeah. You know, just immense confusion. What do I do with my life? Is yeah. this the right person? Am I going in the right direction? Yeah. And there seems to be this like real sense of lostness that's within them. Whether or not they tell people around them and admit that, there is this deep sense of, of lostness. Uh, it, maybe a disconnection from emotions, being able to feel those things. Yeah. So it seems to show up in a myriad of ways. Is there anything else in there that that you've seen as sort of like the symptoms of this split? Yeah, drug and alcohol addiction, yeah. poor relationships, um, re-traumatization. Okay. Because uh, a, a subconscious drive to kind of resolve trauma yeah. is to create the same sort of themed trauma in your life and try to get power over it. Right. So that's what we call re-traumatization. Yeah, and I see a lot of men using porn as, oh yeah. as a means of doing that. Like, and actually, yeah. a lot of porn is actually designed Correct. to facilitate re-traumatization. Yes. Right? It's actually designed to induce this, this feeling of, oh, I have power over this trauma. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's a sick industry for that when it's yeah. like that. Yeah. It's not yeah. good, dude. Yeah, it's, it's not always like that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not always. Yeah. But that, that vein of it yeah. is very dangerous, man. Yeah. Very dangerous. So, okay. So uh, the, the split happens and there's, you know, there's these symptoms and side effects. Um, enter, there's, there's a multitude of ways to, to sort of deal with these things, but enter plant medicine. Mm -hmm. Can you give us you can give the listeners some context to maybe just neurologically um and sort of like biochemically why plant medicine is impactful yeah so um our neurochemicals are related to our mood and other body functions that we need two key ones that we have that plant medicine addresses are serotonin and dopamine mm. so uh what happens in life just normal life is that we are our balances of our neurochemistry gets a little out of whack by the way we live by the way we eat by maybe history of meds sometimes genetically we're born with low dopamine there's all these different things and it affects our mood so there's that sort of biochemical side to, to neurochemistry now the behavioral side is different because if we make bad decisions or we choose to use drugs and alcohol or we we are not living from a place of authenticity, then everything gets sort of faded. Mm. And what happens with trauma in particular, when we go through trauma, 
is we push those emotions into our amygdala. And so our amygdala is the part of the brain that stores our subconscious stuff. Yeah. And plant medicine goes in and opens up your amygdala and it connects it to the prefrontal cortex, which is our conscious rational self. And so then those two parts of the brain, in a sense, link up and you can figure out like, oh, the reason I have these horrible relationships in my life now, why I can't keep a girlfriend is because my mom abused me when I was five and I didn't really understand what it all meant. Mm -hmm. So I don't trust women as an example. Mm -hmm. And so now, instead of looking at women with like mistrust or disdain, and then he picks these women that kind of reinforce that belief that are all not good for him and he's not good for them. Now he can go out and get a healthy relationship because he's no longer holding on to this emotional baggage that is representative of trauma. Mm. So what happens then is two things, like the neurochemistry is being rebalanced with, with plant medicine, and then the amygdala is processing subconscious thoughts. And then what happens is, you know, if that would, if it, just like a Pandora's box, it opens up and they all come flooding out, right? Yeah. But, but the, the next step to that is that it, it builds new neuron pathways in the brain that say women are nice and women are beautiful and women are perfect. Yeah, and I'm safe, safe around I'm them. safe with women. Yeah. Yeah. And so then that neuron pathway gets set up as opposed to the old one that was based on trauma from his mom at age five. Yeah. So that's how the brain evolves and changes it called synaptic plasticity. And that's a huge healing component of the ayahuasca. Crazy. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it just tying this all back into the split. And, uh, you know, I think what it sounds like is that, you know, from a psychological standpoint, Jung would have said that the split causes sort of like the beginning part of the shadow. Yes. Right. And that the, the shadow, which is the part of the consciousness where we store all the things that we don't like about ourselves or want to avoid or want to reject or deny or you know whatever that is yeah uh it sort of gets put into the shadow and so that's sort of the formation right the split is sort of like the formation of the shadow within, correct within the unconscious mind and it sounds like the plant medicine is like this way to to face it mm -hmm. you have to just kind of like go on this hero's journey because yeah <laughs> you know, some, some of it is challenging um how does I, i've read some stuff that uh and i'm not an expert in this by any means at all uh but i'm curious because i've read some stuff that says that that plant medicine stuff like psilocybin have an impact on the default mode network and that it actually allows the default mode network to quiet down uh mm -hmm. and you can experience you experience consciousness in a different way so can you maybe just for the listeners describe what the what the default mode network is uh and then how that like what that experience is and, and yeah. does, does that does plant medicine have the same uh, sort of connection as psilocybin? It does. And those all the plants that I know about tend to work on that same mechanism. Mm. Because, you know, the way that they understand the brain in this arena was often done on through drug studies, in, in particular cocaine. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's, it's interesting, right? Because <laughs> like cocaine's like the ego inflator, right? Yes. Like it jacks up the big the time mode network, right? Big time. Yeah. And there's a pleasure response part of the, the mechanism that in the brain that becomes what, what we know as the addictive side biologically of drugs and alcohol and other things, and other behaviors. Yeah. There's lots of behavioral addictions. So what happens is once that pleasure sort of response is triggered in this way, then the brain 
just gets used to that and it becomes sort of the norm. Mm. And when you take that substance or that behavior away, like pornography or gambling addiction or a drug and alcohol addiction, the body needs it and it doesn't have it because the body got used to having this external source of stimulation mm. from uh, overdoing it with the behavior of the substance. So what happens is uh, there's a drop in the normal neurochemical profile of a person. And that's where they have these withdrawal symptoms. And that's when their anxiety climbs mm. because the body is confused and the brain is not balanced. And all this stuff that has to do with our, our hormonal balances and also our sort of just our lymph system and all of the parts of the body that are in harmony with each other, they all get thrown off. And mm. that's where we get thrown into these tail spins. Yeah. So what's interesting is that with, um, with plant medicine, it'll go in and it will reset that mechanism. Hmm. It'll get it so it's not uh, firing too much or, or, de or depleted because of the lack of the substance that they were flooding it with from before. So the ayahuasca in particular goes in, resets that mechanism, and then makes it so that you have back to your normal sort of uh, state, almost like a child in a way, that you don't need this crazy stimulation you don't need all this external stuff. You're back down to sort of like the baseline of awareness. And that's where people, you know, they feel emotionally sensitive in a nice way, like in a way that they're attuned hmm. to other people, you know? And so that's, that's basically what's going on. A lot of it's just theory based because in order to do in, in vivo brain studies, that's like really rare, Yeah, you know, cause you're, you're operating on somebody that's alive. I mean, it's, it's hard to do studies on the brain yeah. until they're dead. And then that's hard because then the brain isn't viable right. really quickly. So a lot of this stuff is theoretical. You know, even antidepressant meds are theoretical on how they work. Huh. They don't actually know. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> very, very interesting. And so uh, with, with plant medicine specifically, it seems to, what you're saying is it, it resets sort of like a, a biochemical what, what about like environmental within the gut? Because from my understanding, the gut produces, is, is sort of like mm -hmm. largely responsible for producing serotonin. Yeah. Um, and, and serotonin is, you know, largely linked to our connection with joy and happiness mm -hmm. and this general feeling of, of uh, okayness, I guess you could call it. Yeah, well-being. Yeah. yeah. And so is there, has there been any uh, research or studies that you know of that have linked or have looked at plant medicine's effect on like the microbiome within the gut? Not that I've seen. And the reason why is because um, since ayahuasca is a schedule one substance, that prevents it from even being studied, yeah. which is horrible. What, what's the take on that? Like why, I mean, this, this plant, you know, grows out of the ground. Uh, it's been around for a very long time. It's been yeah. used for thousands of years. Yeah. What's the sort of, sort of clinical reasoning behind why it's a, uh, a stage one or uh, schedule one schedule one yeah sorry the reason they would give you right is, is maybe not the real reason yeah. but, but i'll tell you both okay so the perfect <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> the reason they give you is because well there's too many contraindications with it because it's an maoi you know a monoamine oxidase inhibitor so okay if what, is, what does that mean that means that uh it any, there's, there's medications also that are MAOIs. Okay. They're used for different biological things. And usually what they're, related, what they're due 
is they turn off the, the digestive enzymes in the stomach. Oh, interesting. So they allow whatever other substance is needed in the body as a medication to be absorbed into the body. Okay. So that's a big part of what MAOIs do. Okay. So ayahuasca is an MAOI because if you just drank ayahuasca with no MAOI in it and just DMT in it, which is the active ingredient, dimethyltryptamine, mm -hmm. it would get digested in the stomach and dissolved and it would be ineffective. Mm -hmm. So you need the two. So that's why ayahuasca is two plants. It's a vine and a regional leaf plant that has a high content of DMT. Hmm. They reduce it, make it, and drink it. And then the MAOI turns off the stomach enzymes, and then the the DMT is absorbed, and you have your experience. So it's only the so you, it's only the combination. You need both of those yes. things. Interesting. Yeah, and that's why people that smoke DMT. Don't have to worry about it because that's you're smoking it. Right, it's absorbed through the lungs. Exactly. So, and what's the difference with psilocybin? Because psilocybin is still dimethyltryptamine at, yeah. its, at its base. So how is that absorbed with the, the stomach enzymes? Don't break down the active ingredient of psilocybin in the way in the way that it would with with uh, DMT. And the reason is because DMT's half life is very short, mm. and so it's not as stable of a structure, and so psilocybin is more stable. So the digestive process doesn't really knock it down to not being effective. Yeah, just because of the different route. You know, it's a, it's a mushroom, right? Yeah. So it's like you're just eating a mushroom. And so it breaks it down normally, not yeah. as, you know, not so as fast. So it kind of makes it through your yeah. stomach acids and then yeah. into the intestines and gets absorbed into that. Yeah. Interesting. So the reason why the, the medical world or the psych world would say it's not viable, right, ayahuasca, is because there's all these contraindications uh, it's, it's dangerous for people that have psychiatric disorders, uh, which is up for debate. And it's, uh, you know, there's med issues and there's heart issues. If people have uh, heart history of being severe heart stuff, and it's not okay for that. So it's not something that, like, for example, marijuana is considered, right, generally very safe. Yeah. But, but ayahuasca has various contraindications. So that's the reason they say it's schedule one. It's, it's, it's dangerous yeah. for people which is it is dangerous if you're not medically appropriate it can right. be right absolutely yeah this is this is not a party drug <laughs> no no it's could not you, could you imagine people uh, trying to take this at a fucking party i've heard that people have tried that and it was never a good idea no no absolutely never not. A good idea. yeah absolutely just, not uh, okay and so so that's the that's the reason that they give what's yeah. what's the reason behind that anything that plugs you into yourself makes you think for yourself and realizes that you're a powerful individual who has the right to decide how you want your life to go and has discernment against good and bad and right and wrong is a threat yeah. to the government, to big business, and to society at large the way it's structured in this corrupt system we're in. Yeah, yeah, I, would, I agree a thousand percent. I, th I think the interesting thing is that I mean, even even marijuana to some degree, you know, mm -hmm, which sure. not even to some degree, I think in, in, in a large degree is, yeah. you know, you can smoke marijuana and and have a meditation that brings you into just an incredible place of consciousness uh, or, or experience that you can have, you know, psilocybin. And I know for myself, psilocybin has been an incredible tool and yeah. resource. Yeah. And and I can see why power structures do not absolutely do not want people to do that and i think the interesting thing is you know it's a mushroom that grows out of the ground 
you know, it's not something that has been cooked up in, in a lab. It's, Correct. it's nature has made it. That's right. And, and clearly nature has made it for a reason. Yep. And for us to ignore that reasoning and that wisdom is a bit asinine. But yep. when, you, when you do something like psilocybin or, you know, plant medicine, ayahuasca, et cetera, I think what you're saying is so, so potent because it does connect you back to a form of loving awareness and mm-hmm. loving truth. And you start to see how there are very serious imbalances within within our society and our culture. Definitely. And and I think that largely people that are are controlling and and res, sort of responsible for these m- massive power structures, uh, government bodies, religious structures, stuff yeah. like that. It, it is a threat because when you have people that are uh, are largely uh, sovereign and autonomous. And they're not out to hurt anyone. You know, they're very loving and compassionate and kind. They they need the system less. That's right. And that is a very interesting concept. As soon as we need the system less, <laughs> yeah. right? Like the government becomes this like parent that doesn't want you to, to let you go. Yeah. Right. I think all of us sort of like know that concept of like a parent that is just they have an attachment disorder, right? They're yeah. like, they don't want you to fucking move out of the home. Yeah, you know, yeah. they need to call you every single day. Yeah. It's like we've heard of parents like that. Oh yeah. And and the more autonomous that we become, the more that, that parent wants to cling onto yes. you know controlling you definitely and and you know big businesses and governments are are no different because if you don't need them then they have no function anymore that's right um so really really interesting you know what's interesting about the legalization of marijuana yeah something, please. That's something i've been observing and it's just my own theory yeah um i've heard other people kind of with the same theory the reason why marijuana i believe was illegal for so long is because it did do what we're talking about. It gave people's like awareness and plugged them into themselves and helped. It made them question authority and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. But then the people demanded eventually over time that they make this legal and has all kinds of great medical uses for yeah. epilepsy and seizure disorders, trauma, I mean, all kinds of insomnia. I mean, it's yeah. chronic pain. It's amazing. Tons, tons of it. But if you look at what's happening now with the legal strains of marijuana. They're extremely powerful. Yeah. They're very strong. The weed that you would smoke now from a dispensary is not the same weed you would have smoked 30 years ago or 10 or even five years ago that some dude grew in his backyard. It's hardcore weed now. Yeah. And so what it's I believe- like 100, 100 proof alcohol. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So what I believe has happened is the government is still trying to flex and they're making it so this weed is so powerful- that it gives the people what they want, the weed and the high and the chronic pain and all the rest of it. But it, it is so powerful that it just makes everyone zombified yeah. and dumbs them down because they're so high yeah. that they're not doing that free thinking sort of question authority thing anymore or not as much. Mm-hmm. So the government kind of got their cake and could eat it too, in mm-hmm. a sense. So my recommendation would be be careful with the legal stuff. Use it. Yeah, but just be careful because it's super strong, and you don't want it to defeat the purpose. Yeah, I've, I've had some uh, quite a few clients actually that, that struggle with uh, porn addiction or or marijuana um, dysfunctions. You know, where where they're using it every single day. Yeah, and there's high anxiety, and mm-hmm. there's high paranoia, and there's high confusion, and they've realized that they have a dependency on it. 
and and it's mostly because the potency mm-hmm. of the weed is so fucking powerful. Yeah, it is. Right, and it's just knocking them on their ass, and and then it creates this anxiety, and then the body gets used to this cycle yeah. of of you know numbing out or avoiding life, yeah. and creating this heightened level of anxiety, and using marijuana to sort of escape that, but yeah. then etc. So yeah, I think the the interesting thing is that you know what I what I usually say to them is. Like the weed's not the problem. It's it's how you're using it. That's, that's right. an issue. Totally. And if you just back off, you know, like rather than going to smoke some giant bong or you know smoke a whole fat joint, yeah. and and you're and you're completely kind of like weed shit faced. Yeah. Back okay. off a little bit. Have one puff. That's right. And and just chill. Exactly. And. And allow yourself to like recondition and reshape your relationship with with the with the weed, that's right? right? With the marijuana, because otherwise, you know, like the saying goes, anything that's uh, uh, too much of something is a bad thing, right? Yeah. So, like, yeah, if you drank four liters of milk, you're gonna puke it all up. Like, you yeah, just exactly. can't hold it, right? That's right. And if you smoke that much weed with that potency it's going to screw you up totally and so i think a lot of people are starting to having to like recondition their relationship with marijuana because of the the strains that are out there the thc is so high it's it insane is. it is um okay we've sort of diverted <laughs> a little bit here but i think this is a really important topic i you agree know? and uh, you know i think things like uh, psilocybin becoming legal yeah. in Denver awesome. is interesting. Yeah. I think that's going to open up a ton of doors and I think it's really helps really, with depression. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, psilocybin can mm-hmm. be a really uh incredible experience for people. Um okay, so you guys uh decide you know Jerry decides he's going to I'm going to come back to Rhythmia and and plant medicine. He decides we're going to open up Rhythmia. How does he enlist you in this cause? <laughs> and how do well, you go about building yeah. this? Because rhythm is very unique, which we're going to get into here in a second. Yeah. Well, you know, I was on board with, he talked to me years before any of this, that we were going to do something in yeah. some sort of arena of healthcare or some sort of business. Yeah. So I was already sort of on board with whatever that might be. And then after we both did plant medicine, we realized together that, yes, we want to have a place that's safe and legal and appropriate for people that would probably never do plant medicine. Mm. You know, because most people aren't going to go off into Peru. That's just the bottom line. Yeah. Even though they could, and it'd be awesome and fun and interesting and a, like a, a, an excursion. It's a big leap. It's a big leap, especially for like, you know, a single mom living in middle America who's working three jobs, you know. She's yeah. not going to go to the jungles of Peru alone. Yeah. I don't think she's going to do that. Yeah. They have done it before, but here... That's normal for us. We see those people, right? And so as soon as we bought, as soon as Jerry purchased the property, I moved here the next week and I was here basically by myself for almost two years. And I had a skeleton crew that was kind of keeping the bushes back because this place, this place can overgrow fast. <laughs> the jungle just could take this place over like in a week. Yeah. So we had a landscaper cutting things and I had a couple of administrative people, but they were they would leave at the end of the day and I was here solo. Wow. You know, it's like The Shining. <laughs> it's like in the hotel alone. But uh, I worked with the government to build this program. Uh, Jerry was working with me and giving his ideas and this and that. And I was writing it all down, filling out a licensing application, and working with our attorneys. That we had a, we had an office in San Jose, which is the capital city of Costa Rica. 
worked with our attorneys, had some consultants, and we were just getting this application together. So I had to clinically justify all the modalities that we use, all the classes, the plant medicine, the yoga, everything had to be justified clinically. And then we submitted it, you know, and I would go back and forth with them. They reviewed it, I think, nine times in, in total. And all the, all the administrators at the Ministry of Health, like, just went over it, went over it, went over it. And we had, finally, they approved it. So, wow. yeah, it took, wow. like, two years to get that done. And then how, how did you guys build the programming here? Because I think one of the unique things is that there is a very specific program. And one of the things that, that I appreciate that you've done is a, a large focus on integration. Because I think what I've heard from people, you know, friends that have gone and done ayahuasca in the jungle, for example, yeah. is that the integration is incredibly challenging because they go have these wild experiences yeah. that maybe tell them and teach them a lot, but they can't really make sense of a whole bunch of shit. Correct. Right? There's, cause, because you, you can see some wild stuff, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. So I think for a lot of people, it's like, what do I do with X, Y, and Z? That doesn't make sense. I don't know what to do with that. And I think the interesting thing that you've done here is there's a, a heavy focus on integration. Big time. So how did you go about creating the, the programming of focusing in on integration, focusing in on how the, the plant medicine was going to, to be taken? Because you, you, know, you do four nights back yeah. to back, which is yeah. really incredible. Mm-hmm. So maybe can you speak to that? Yeah. Well, it's going to sound weird, my answer, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> the plant medicine told us to do it this way. Mm. We asked questions during ceremonies, Jerry and I, and it told us exactly what to do. Amazing. Yeah. It sounds crazy. Believe me, dude. I know that sounds insane. No, I mean, I, it, it, <laughs> it does and it doesn't. Yeah. Right? I, I, think, I think for people, I mean, I, I, I think even for people that have just drank alcohol, yeah. you know, alcohol tells you to do some stupid shit sometimes. Sure. It's a little bit different because is. alcohol is a suppressant. And, uh, but it has its own voice, yeah, right? It has its own sort of spirit. It's it does. Spirit, right? So we, we would, we, for example, it was kind of a mixed thing. Like yeah. we would say, all right, you know, how many ceremonies should we have in a week? Then it would, it would give us some clarity on how many four. Yeah. Uh, you know, then we would have our own ideas that we bring to the medicine. Like, should we have yoga? Because uh. we, we figured yoga is a nice, good thing to help people. So should we do yoga? And then it would say yes, basically. So it wasn't like we just got all the stuff directly clear, right. free of that. Right. But we it would it would tell us it would answer with things, and then we would bring ideas to the to the ceremonies, and then it would give us clarity on that. So it's kind of a mix of those two sort of approaches. Amazing. Yeah. So Amazing. everything here is based on that. Incredible. If somebody comes to us and they want to add a modality, like some expert in something that comes as a guest, let's say, I don't know, they're an art therapist and they're like this amazing, famous art therapist. You guys should have art therapy. We go, hey, it's a good idea. Guests would probably like it. Okay, so we're going to, Jerry and I are going to do a a ceremony. We're going to ask. And if it comes back no, then we don't do it. Yeah. And if it comes back yes, then we have a process on how to integrate that into what we're doing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Is that wild? That's amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. Then we have to run it by our board of directors anyway and yeah. the Ministry of Health. So there's there's administrative stuff we still have to do. Right. But uh, everything that's that's here is because the plant medicine guided us towards it. Yeah. Every single thing. One of the things that has stood out to me is the the sort of rigor around data and and being able to sort of look at this uh, plant medicine 
and the structure within the institution that you've created here, but being able to say, okay, let's, let's also use this as a bit of research, right? Because you've had something like 6,000 people come through. Yeah, about 6,000. Yeah, 6,000 people, that's, that's incredible, yeah. right? Yeah, So what have you learned, maybe, maybe a couple of, two, two questions. Uh-huh. One, what have you been sort of tracking and, and wanting to figure out? Yeah. And two, what have you learned along the way? Well, the number one thing we track is the miracle rate. Mm-hmm. And what that means is on the exit survey, when people are done with their week, there's, a, there's all these questions. And then one of the questions at the end says, did you get your miracle? Mm-hmm. And that means, did you realize your intentions? Did you, did you see who you become, reunite with your soul, and heal your heart? That would be your miracle. Yeah. Did you get that? And so they say yes or no. And, and then we, uh, we document and, and monitor how many people got that in a week. We're upwards in the 90 plus. Last week, we had 100%. Wow. We had like 90 guests here, 100%. Wow. Yeah, all of them said yes. And we hover in the mid-90s wow. every single week, which is crazy. Yeah, that's insane. Because <laughs> I, I come from a world where 10 or 12% success rate is considered good. Right. 10 or 12%. Right. So this is like off the charts. And the kind of data we're collecting is how many plant ceremonies did they go to? What classes did they go to? Did they go to yoga? Did they did they meet with me and have a, a session? Yeah. You know, there's a fob thing right there to swipe your key on. Did they did they attend Paola's class, The Answer Is You, which is Michael Beckwith's curriculum, right? Yeah. Every did they go and get a massage? Like every single thing that's offered here, we document through our fob system that you swipe as you go in. And then what happens is we get all this data and then we crunch it down into like the miracle rate versus what was attended and not attended and what works and like what's not working. And we've tailored the program to fine tune it like that. Wow. Yeah. Nobody else is doing that in the world. And yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I really appreciate. And, and what's the, what's the intention with that? Like what's the hope with that at, at some point down the road? We want to, we want two things out of this. We want to hit hundred percent every week. That's number one because awesome. every, we we view every person here as they're here for a reason. Yeah, there's, there's no luck or happenstance that these people come here. They're here because they need healing. They need to see who they've become and they need to heal themselves. And so we're here to help facilitate that. We take every guest very seriously, every single one of them. So we want 100%. That's our goal. The other thing is that we want to make this a replicable model that can be used in other parts of the world. We don't, I'm not even saying that we would own them. Yeah. But we, if, if this place is not making any money and it's in the hole a million bucks every quarter, no one's going to pick this up and do this. This right. is just like a labor of love purely. And it has been that. But we want this to be everywhere. Yeah. And so in order for a guy in Sandusky, Ohio to say, I'm not going to open that car wash. I'm going to open up Arrhythmia. Yeah. That's what we want because it's a viable business model. So that's what these data points are about, getting it to be perfectly working like a like a perfectly made Rolex watch. Yeah. Just tight. Amazing. Yeah. Do you, do you think that at some point, you know, there 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 could be a arrhythmia in in the, in America like in the states? I do. And you know, Oakland, California just legalized ayahuasca. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, just recently. And there's still some regulations around it, of course. Yeah. Um, but they, they also, reg- uh, I believe, they also legalize psilocybin too, and a couple other plant-based yes. medicines. Yeah. You know. Um, so I, I believe that it will be possible in in the U.S. And the reason is because there's Native American lands where it is legal. 
There's also certain religious organizations like the Santo Daime that exist. Now, the issue with those places isn't anything bad. It's just that it's religious-based. So if you don't fit that religious profile, it's like maybe not your your exact, you know, place. But um, I believe there will be arrhythmia in the U.S. at some point in the future. But it's kind of to be like the marijuana movement was, which is grassroots. The people are demanding it. Well, I think that's the that's the really interesting part is that there is this huge groundswell, this grass grassroots groundswell mm-hmm. of people that are seeing the benefits of things like marijuana, you know, CBD, et cetera, uh, seeing the benefits of psilocybin and plant based medicine like ayahuasca, yeah, and and are really making a huge push, and they're taking risks, right? Because like it's not a it's not an easy thing, but you yeah. have people like. Even people like Tim Ferriss, oh yeah, a huge public figure, yeah, and he's taken all of his investments out of tech and put it into psychedelics. Yes, right. So you can Amazing. see this shift happening where major, like, sort of key influencers are saying, "Okay, this is a real thing that we as a Western culture need." Definitely, um, and and so let's let's do this. I agree, and yeah. it's exciting right now. Amazing. It's super, super exciting. I'm loving every minute of this, man. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a wild ride. Well, you know, I, I'm conscious of time. I think we're going to have to wrap up here, but cool. this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you do here. And, uh, you know, for the people that are that are listening, how can they learn a little bit more about you and, and the work that you do? What I want to say to all your men listeners, too, just briefly, if yeah. I could. yeah. This this uh, plant medicine world tends to get sort of a, an understanding of by people that it is all about these soft, mm. uh, non-masculine, sort of like weak people. Yeah. That is not what this that is, is about. That is not the case. Not at all, man. <laughs> you gotta be a little bit of, you gotta be a champion. To, this to, is this is this, this is plugging into your masculine vibe and yeah. owning who you are as a man. And, and taking control of that of that part of us. Because men and women, you know, we all have different struggles we deal with. Men's struggles right now are very interesting. Yeah. Women, we all know, have historical and current struggles that are real and are serious. Yeah. But what, what gets often overlooked are the men's issues that are needed to balance out the world. Yeah. And I'm here as a man who's a strong dude, and I'm saying, come on, guys, let's get this handled so we can be happy and healthy and do what we need to do as men in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the interesting things on that point is, you know, I, I always say to guys is like you you cannot absolutely cannot crush it in life without healing your heart. And yep. it's, it sounds it sounds like it's soft. Yeah, yeah. But but, <laughs> you know, the greatest warriors of all time. The absolutely like Spartans were a perfect example of that. Oh yeah, they they were some of the most feared warriors on the face of the planet, and they would spend half their day learning about hand to hand combat and fighting with swords and shields, and the other half learning how to do poetry and learning how to you know dance and write and all those things. And yeah, create music. Yeah, and uh, but there's a there's a tradition and a lineage for a lot of warriors to have to go on a hero's journey. And for some people, you know, I think ayahuasca is that hero's journey. I agree. And 
I mean, you, yeah, you, you will meet yourself. <laughs> yeah, you, you will meet yourself, and it's a, that's right. It's a bit of a ride. So, um, yeah, man, wonderful. And, so, what you can find me on uh, the Rhythmia Facebook page, awesome, and uh, also the videos I do every Monday night at six p.m. Pacific Standard Time. They get saved onto the website, so you don't have to you know right. watch them live. They get thrown over to YouTube under the Rhythmia channel. I just talked for five ten minutes about psychological stuff, medical stuff with plant medicine and how Rhythmia is doing. Nice. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we'll have links in the show notes for everyone to go check that out. Cool. And uh, for everyone that's out there that's listening, if you enjoyed this podcast episode and you know someone in your life that is curious about plant-based medicine, fire this off to them, share it with a few people. It goes a long way into just spreading the message and the wisdom that that's coming out here. Um, and, and the structure and the order that you guys have created here is phenomenal. So thank you. Uh, so thanks very much. Uh, don't forget to leave a rating and review and subscribe to the channel. Until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm-hmm.